Welcome to Off Kilter, a podcast about the fight for economic liberation and what it will take to set us all free, powered by the Century Foundation. I'm Rebecca Vallis, and I'm a former legal aid lawyer turned policy advocate who works with public policy and law, as well as organizing, coalition building, and narrative as tools for building a more just society, one premised on collective consciousness of our common humanity and the inherent dignity and rights that come with being human. Every week, I talk with visionary leaders working to reinvigorate our shared imagination and disrupt the off-kilter imbalance of power in the U.S. to build a society where everyone can thrive and experience the shared abundance we all deserve. And along those lines, I wanted to open this week's episode with some beautiful words from Dorian Warren, Anne Price, and Jhumpa Bhattacharya from an essay that they co-published early in the pandemic entitled Centering Blackness, the path to liberation for all. I quote, we as a society are eager for a reboot, a different way of living in connection with one another and are ready to vision forward. It is time to champion new thinking that is shaped by what we all deeply and collectively value in life, self-determination, dignity, and freedom of choice to create a society where everyone can truly thrive and experience shared abundance. So to continue the series of conversations we've been having on Off Kilter about the limiting beliefs we as a collective must repeal and replace to pave the way for economic liberation, I sat down with Dorian and Aisha Nyandoro, both of whom are dear friends and leaders within the Guaranteed Income Movement, to continue the conversation we started on Off-Kilter last week about one of the most toxic limiting beliefs underpinning large-scale oppression in the U.S. today, the notion that a human being's worth comes from their work. Dorian Warren is a co-president of Community Change. He's also a co-chair of the Economic Security Project. And Aisha Nyandoro is CEO of Springboard to Opportunities and founder of the Magnolia Mothers Trust. You can find lots more about both of their work and the essay I mentioned, as well as past episodes they've been on on Off Kilter, talking about their various projects in show notes. Dorian, Aisha, it is such a pleasure to be back in conversation with you guys. I just wish we were in person, but thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. It's great to be back with you, Rebecca. Ditto. So wonderful to be having this conversation. Uh, Y'all are two of my favorite humans. I was saying that before we started to get rolling, but uh, I'll say it on air too, because it is true. Um, I'm looking forward to getting to talk off air as well at some point soon. But in the meantime, I will take this. Um, uh, so I just just want to start where we generally start these conversations. You've both been on the show before, um, but especially for the benefit of maybe some of our newer listeners, I'd love to give you each a chance to talk a little bit about how you come to this work. Um, you each have worn a lot of different hats over the years. Years, but but also you're very intentional with how you enter uh, this work. So, um, I, I, Dorian, I think I'm going to start with you there. Um, uh, kick us off. How did you come to this work? Well, I came to this work, honestly, through Black women and really my mother, my grandmother, and watching not totally what they said, but their behavior. And what I mean by that is my earliest political memory is walking a picket line of striking Chicago public school teachers at the age of seven with my mother and understanding and her explaining to me why she was taking this collective action against her employer, the Board of Education at the time, and what it would mean for our family um, if 
striking teachers won. And they did. And they won twice, actually, in the 1980s. And my mother would explain, frankly, the really concrete material difference, like getting a raise when we were working class and then lower middle class and middle class, like what it meant to fight for that and that no one was going to ever give you anything. So I think just watching my mother and my grandmother um, and really the range of Black women in my family, watching them take collective action to improve their lives, I think is how I actually come to this work. And I've been searching for a long time now on what is the most impactful and um, ways to make social change and to achieve social justice. But it's really, really comes from my family, um, how I came to this work. And so now, as you know, Rebecca, and as Aisha knows, I'm, I wear a number of different hats in the movement. Um, I am the co-president of Community Change, um, and we're support grassroots organizing around the country. And I'm the a very proud co-founder of the Economic Security Project, which has been really focused on taking on corporate power through anti-monopoly work and, of course, supporting the Aishas of the world around this radical but now mainstream idea of guaranteed income. And we're going to get into a bunch of those different threads and, and make you put on a few of those different hats. But I, I have to confess, I don't think, Dorian, I had ever actually heard you tell that story before. I, we've known each other for a long time. So I'm, I'm actually really glad that I, I asked that question and that you got to share a little bit of that personal side of, of how you came into the work. And I'll just acknowledge as, a, a side, uh, as an aside before bringing you in, Aisha, that um, I don't think I had realized that it was really from childhood that then you, you were grounded in the understanding that the no Notion of uh, Messiah politics is mm. is is a mythology. You've mm. known the whole time that no one's coming to save us. That we're <laughs> we're the ones who are going to save us. I don't think I knew you were quite that uh, precocious, shall we say? Well, I'll let the church say Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Aisha, how do you come to this work and 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 talk a little bit about your your progression to the hats you wear now as well? You know, yeah, I love this question, and Dorian, I love hearing you provide your origin story. And I think this is why we are really good friends because our origin stories are similar. Um, I feel like all roads of progression come from Black women. Um, and I too, from a very young age, was brought up with the understanding that you are blessed to be a blessing and that change begins at home. And I learned that from my mother and my aunts and my grandmother and just really sitting around the dinner table and having conversations about what it looks like to really affect change and how when you are working towards change, those who are most impacted have to be in the conversation. And it's not about doing anything for a community, it's doing things with the community. And, you know, from a very young age, those were my favorite conversations to really talk about how you go about moving the needle on policy and systems change and how you go about doing that in partnership with community. I am really blessed that I am a daughter of the South, the daughter granddaughter of Mississippi. And so my lessons about what it really does take to be rooted in community were learned from veterans of the civil rights movement. Like I said, my grandmother, um, specifically at her table, she was a veteran of the movement and just really having the ability to sit at her feet and learn that the arc of change really is long and that we have to be prepared for the ebbs and flows of what that fight actually looks like. And so you celebrate the little wins while you also keep your eyes um, glued towards the North Star. And I'm so grateful for those early lessons because they really did 
shape my ability to do the work that I do now. And in my capacity now, the main seat, main um, hat that I wear and main seat that I sit in is at the chief executive officer of Springboard Opportunities. So Springboard provides programs and services for families that live in federally subsidized affordable housing, really providing ourselves on taking a radically resident-driven approach to how we go about supporting families as they advance in life, school, and work. And I also am the architect of the Magnolia Mothers Trust, um, which is the first modern-day guaranteed income project in this country that provides $1,000 a month to Black mothers living in extreme poverty. And in that capacity, I'm, I'm one of the co-founders of the Guaranteed Income Community of Practice, and I sit on the board with Dorian of the Economic Security Project. It's so many hats, but all of them have that through line of finding the ways to advance, frankly, the the notion of, of common human dignity, right? And and uh, moving away from the notion that one's deservingness or, or worth comes from their work, which in a lot of ways is, is uh, one of the um, core elements of the conversation we're going to have today. But before we get into talking about limiting beliefs and, and some of the most toxic limiting beliefs and agreements that, frankly, we as a collective need to figure out how to release and replace if we're ever going to have a shot at uh, achieving what lies at the other end of that North Star you mentioned, Aisha, true collective liberation. Um, I, I do want to give you each a chance to respond to a quote that I mentioned earlier um, up top, uh, and, and which I actually found the piece that it comes from recently when I was thinking about uh, what you each have been doing and saying, and um, I had read it when it came out and I, I had forgotten about it. And Dorian, it sounds like you forgot about it too. Um, so I love that we're going to get to talk about it for a minute. It's an essay that um, Dorian, you wrote uh, with um, Anne Price and, and Jumpa Bhattacharya, um, two of your, of your colleagues um, in the movement. And, and the essay is called Centering Blackness, The Path to Liberation for All. We've got a link to it in show notes, but I'm going to quote from it. And then I'd, live to, I'd love to give each of you a chance to respond um, to it, starting with you, Dorian, since you, you helped to write these words. Um, but, but I'm going to ask that question in the context of how you each are understanding the moment in human history that we're, we're currently living in. Um, so I'm going to quote here, we as a society are eager for a reboot, a different way of living in connection with one another and are ready to vision forward. It's time to champion new thinking that is shaped by what we all deeply and collectively value in life, self-determination, dignity, and freedom of choice to create a society where everyone can truly thrive and experience shared abundance. And again, that essay is called Centering Blackness. The Path to Liberation for All. You, you all published that on Median Medium. Dorian, what was going on when you guys wrote this? Talk to me a little bit about mm. the context for this piece and, um, and 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 this beautiful string of words that that um, uh, comes so much more from each of your hearts than from your heads. It feels just to read them. Well, thanks for reminding me about this piece. And I have to admit, I had I need to reread it because I had forgotten some of these words. It was published, if I'm not mistaken, on Juneteenth. 2020. Yes. Um, but we have been working on it actually for a couple of years, to be honest. And so it comes out of really the decade of the 2010s, um, some high moments, some very low moments. And I tend to think of any moment in history, by the way, as contradictory. There's some major opportunities all the time and some serious threats. And I'll come back to that point. But I think we were reflecting on and this is, again, before the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020, there was 
this long decade of a renewed organizing, the birth of the movement for Black lives in response to the killings of Black people from Trayvon Martin to um, Michael Brown in Missouri, to, right, in Ferguson. And there had been this organizing activity really shining the light on the deep issue of white supremacy in this country that continues. And also there had been a, just a range of organizing around economic justice and economic liberation. So, um, of course, in 2011 was the launch of Occupy Wall Street. But the following year in 2012, and in fact, this is the 10-year anniversary, there was a launch of this thing called the Fight for 15 and a Union of low-wage workers organizing to say, this is not enough. One job should be enough to survive on, much less thrive on. And so we were trying to reflect on the organizing that had been happening against injustice, you know, especially the last few years leading into 2020. And then, of course, um, and remember, this is before the 2020 election, we were living in the midst of Trumpism. Um, and then, of course, the murder of George Floyd. And we had this essay that we've been working on. And we said, you know, we have to get this out now because this is the moment. So that is the origin of the essay. And Maybe the second thing I'll just say quickly, Rebecca, is why those, my way of thinking about those words is, is to make it really tangible and grounded. For me, I really think of, I've been thinking a lot about my grandmother because um, I have a two year old daughter. And in a hundred years ago in 1922, my grandmother was roughly the same age. And so I think a lot about what was her life. The year 1922, um, we were slowly coming out of a global pandemic, not unlike COVID. Um, there were famous race riots just a couple years before in my hometown of Chicago. There was Revive KKK on the march. There was Mussolini, a young Mussolini and Hitler on the rise in terms of global fascism. Our own racial authoritarianism in the Jim Crow South had consolidated by 1922. Reconstruction had been over. Voter, Black voters had been purged from the polls and weren't allowed to, but like all the things that might ring familiar to our ears now. When my grandmother was three, she was also facing that. And so I think a lot about what were movement leaders in 1922 under those conditions? What were they thinking about? What were they organizing around? What were they strategizing around to create a better world for my grandmother? And that's what I think about a lot in this moment of 2022 with my own daughter of what is my charge? What is the charge of us collectively as a movement to make sense of the conditions in which we find ourselves and to hopefully transform this country and this world? That's beautiful. Aisha, how do these words land with you? Um, and I know it's a, it's an essay you had seen as well, but I, I almost feel even just saying them out loud because I had not read them out loud until just now. I had read them in my head, reading on the page. I, I actually got full body shivers even just speaking the words. How do these words land with you at this moment in human history? Um, you know, so full and so much. Um, and specifically thinking about the small part that I play in this moment, the few words that are really resonating with me from that quote, that beautiful quote from um, our friends at Insight, Insight Center and Dorian, is to create a society where everyone can truly thrive and experience shared abundance. And I have been thinking about what it means to thrive. And so much of my work is really about operating in a space of a radical imagination where we all have the access to thrive and have that radical abundance. And I really have been grappling with that for the last uh, several months as to 
what will that look like? Uh, and also with the reality that the work that I am actually moving towards uh, is work that I don't think will come into fruition in my lifetime. Um, and that's okay because it's just, you know, we all play just a very small piece in a larger ecosystem of change. And being okay with that, I think, is the lessons that we've learned from our elders and from those who came before us just to figure out what our portion is and how do we go about divorcing, in some instances, our ego from the reality that it's not about us, it's about the larger work of movement building, and it's about the impact that we are working towards for, you know, generation, generation, generations forward, not just for this moment in time. And so for me, it's a beautiful sentiment that connects to uh, a larger system, quite frankly, um, of change and helps to ground you in a lot of instances when you say, okay, you know, I understand and I am here to work towards a society where we're all thriving. And I also recognize that just like my grandmother and my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother, the dreams that I am seeding will flourish to tree into trees that others get to benefit from. That's so beautiful, and 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 just to to follow on that thread, uh, uh, one of the pieces of the conversation I had with Jeremy Greer and Solana Rice, two two friends of both of yours, um, who are are the co founders and the visionaries behind Liberation in a Generation, in our our first episode of this season of Off Kilter, was really around that exact point that it it's not about change that we can bring about tomorrow or even within our lifetimes or nothing at all. We're we're really we're we're fighting the fight for the next generation, and it's always been in in that way. Um, it, it's it's such an important point, given that uh, it, it's it's so easy to, to and, and so frequent, right, to be told, um, "Oh, your dreams aren't realistic," or "Oh, that can't get done in this Congress," and and that's sort of the point, right, that you're making. If we're only thinking about what you can do right now in this exact moment, then you aren't you aren't dreaming, right? That isn't vision because you're, exactly you're actually right. you're you're talking about the now you're talking about improving on the status quo. So I can't think of a better segue into the meat and potatoes or the seitan and the tofu of, of this conversation, depending on your leanings, um, uh, which is, is, is getting to some of the collective limiting beliefs that we are invisibly allowing to serve as a net over us as a society standing in the way of the visions and the dreams that otherwise might seem uh, unrealistic or uh, impossible. So I, I, I want to really throw that to both of you as kind of the kicking off point for the next chunk of this conversation with the prompt that I'd, I'd love to start with, in my opinion, what is sort of the mother of many of the limiting beliefs that, that we uh, currently have uh, uh, wreaking all kinds of, of invisible havoc in American society today, which is the notion that one's deservingness or one's worth comes from their work. So I'm, I'm going to stay with you there, Aisha, for a moment and then bring you back in, Dorian, because um, this is a, it's a, it's a core uh, element of, of your work is pushing back on and always has been throughout your career, pushing back on that limiting belief, pushing us to call it out, to name it so that we can realize how much it's at work. We talked a good amount about this last week with Rebecca Coakley and Keith Jones, and we didn't even scratch the surface, which is a big part of why I wanted to bring that thread into this conversation with both of you. So Aisha, talk to me a little bit about that as a limiting belief and, and how that's showing up today in American society. 
And I think it's showing up in the through line and thread line in so many of our policies right now. And I think the ideal of worth coming from work is definitely among um, this country's most limiting beliefs. And, but relatedly, whose work we see as worthy is another major challenge. Black women participate in the labor market at far greater numbers than their counterpart. Yet the disparities as it relates to income stability and wealth acquisition demonstrates that as a society, we actually don't value their labor efforts. And I think this pandemic Pandemic has helped us see that those um, we have far so long, that those that we have far so long held up as the pinnacle of success in America, the white collar workers and those individuals with their corner offices are not actually those who are keeping the economy afloat and society afloat. It's our teachers, our hospital workers, our grocery store clerks, all of those individuals who were we, you know, deemed as frontline workers at the beginning of the pandemic. And while the public is finally recognizing this critical labor, we also need our corporations to do the same by paying workers to live a wage and offering them the benefits that they need to go about actualizing the American dream, which is closely tied to the population I serve since so many of the women um, that we work with are Black women overrepresented in these low-paying jobs that have no benefits in a lot instances. And, you know, I think, though, another issue as it relates to a long-held belief within this country is that's truly understanding how poverty works. Um, I think the pandemic has helped me understand that most Americans just fundamentally do not understand the role of policies in determining financial stability and economic mobility. And we still view poverty as a personal failing of an individual rather than a collective failure of society. Oh, that is so well said. And we need to spend some time on, on that piece as well. Dorian, where do you want to take that? We we spent some time last week uh, really drawing the the line straight through from, from slavery to present mm. day. And that is probably fairly obvious to anyone who's listening and thinking about where that might have come from in, in the U.S. But this isn't just an incredibly toxic, limiting belief for communities of color. It's got toxicity that impacts all of us. Talk a little bit about how this shows up in, in American society for you? Well, I, I actually start where, where you just left off in a way in terms of the through line from slavery because um, it, it, it's a good example. And I, I'll raise childcare and early learning as an, as an example where you can root the origins of our childcare system or frankly lack thereof, um, excuse me, um, to slavery and to the role of enslaved Black domestic workers, Black women, and doing the care work for the country's children. And in the lack of worth attached to that care work from the very founding of this country. And so it's not a surprise that we are sitting here in the 21st century um, with a privatized childcare system, with the devaluation of the vastly supermajority female workforce, particularly of women of color in the childcare and home care industries, we have still not made the policy and political choices to value that work. And again, there's a through line to, um, to domestic workers, enslaved black women in slavery for hundreds of years doing that work for free. The other, the other point I'd make here is, um, and I'm, Rebecca, you made me think of this book I read many years ago in grad school called Belated Feudalism. It's a very academic work um, by political scientists, a woman named Karen Oren. And they, but here's the crux of the argument. I'm going to make it plain. Um, we basically imported employment and labor law from England. 
in the 17th, 18th centuries here. And that labor and employment law was rooted in a system not of capitalism, but of feudalism, where the vast majority of quote-unquote subjects in a society had no rights. And in fact, there were stories made up to justify that system of exploitation and unfreedom. And that's part of the origin of these notions around work and why dignity comes from work. It's because there have been systems throughout human history where that were created to force and compel people to work for others' profits and benefits, and then just making up a story about why that was somehow a good thing. And we've been combating that for hundreds of years. Now, there was a little bit of an innovation with this thing called the Protestant work ethic um, that's been written about for many, many decades now. And there's an, a unique American version of that where you know, we were mostly defined, we grew up hearing these stories and are mostly defined by work, by notions of hard work, as opposed to having the dignity that should be afforded every human being regardless of work. So, we have these really dominant narratives and stories about why work is supposedly worth so much, even though we want to pay people for it, that justifies, frankly, exploitation and the benefit of a very few group of people at the top from who benefit from all of our labor. And that's that seems to me to be like our long-term challenge is really busting through these narratives that have held sway for way too long and have justified so much misery um, and, and suffering for, you know, not just hundreds of years, but frankly, you know, I can count back about four or five generations in my own family in this country who were all hard workers, but never valued, never valued for the work that they did. So we have a, anyway, we, maybe I'll end this way and to pick up on what Aisha said, we in this moment need that radical imagination of what it would mean to decouple one's worth from work. What would it mean to say we are all as just by virtue of being human beings valued, have dignity, have the same rights and opportunities as everybody else. And I think that is the narrative challenge in front of us. And it's it's a big part of why uh, you and I and, and Aisha and other people spend as much time as we do talking about narrative, right? Which can somehow sound separate from policy or from uh, from from reality, and and yet is is really about the the consciousness work that we're that we're all collectively doing um, here to to try to move from the limiting beliefs to the the place of imagination, unrestricted in in the ways that we have been up to this point as a society. A notion and a metaphor that has real resonance for me in this moment, which has come through the mouths and words of a, a number of people I consider to be modern-day oracles and prophets, um, is is the the notion that we are living in a battle of imaginations. Um, that this is a moment where a lot of people are waking up and realizing, wait a second, we've been living in someone else's imagination this whole time. And that that's a, a way of understanding what oppression is, that oppression is when a, a person or a bunch of people are all living in someone else's dream. Um, and so as you're describing this, Dorian, and as I think back to where we started this conversation about that that beautiful essay about centering Blackness, that essay, you, you spend a lot of time, I didn't quote it here, but you spend a lot of time in that essay writing about why it, it it's important to center Blackness and, and, and actually helping people realize that 
when you don't do that, well, what are we doing by default invisibly? Well, we're centering whiteness. And and that actually is the imagination in which we've been living. Um, I, I want to give you each, just to continue this thread a little bit, the chance to talk about how the push for a guaranteed minimum income fits into this conversation. Dorian, you were starting to take us to what are the narratives, what are the beliefs that we, we have an invitation now uh, to replace the your worth comes from your work uh, limiting belief with. Um, talk a little bit, Aisha, about the push for a guaranteed minimum income from the place of radical imagination that you were just describing. Yeah, thank you for that. So a couple of pieces I think are important before we dive into the um, guaranteed income piece. It's the narrative challenge. And then I also think it's the harm of living in someone else's imagination. And I think the narrative challenge for me, specifically, you know, as we have been doing this work of guaranteed income for a number of years, is how dangerous how dangerous narratives are as it relates to how you view yourself and your worth. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we talk about that enough because the mainstream narrative is very loud um, and it's everywhere. So if you are constantly being told who you are by someone who, number one, doesn't have permission to define you, and number two, actually has no idea of who you are, you begin to see that, and that limits your imagination, and you begin to live in the imagination of someone else, and that limits your ability to dream about your future and what liberation and collective liberation should look like for yourself and your family. So it's all very dangerous because it this allows you to dream and it allows you to be in a place of scarcity because that's where the status quo wants you and that's where mainstream wants you. And so that's so, so very dangerous because it doesn't allow us to operate in our full potential. And so guaranteed income comes in and disrupts that because guaranteed income is a direct challenge to this ideal of worthiness as it relates to your job. And instead of saying, yes, you are deserving of a floor, you cannot fall through by your very existence as a human being. And not only are you deserving of that floor, you are deserving to be the narrative of your life and what it is that you do with that floor and how you go about living out your dreams. It really is a provocation to delink labor and dignity and gets us to the society. I think most of us really want to live in, I hope most of us want to live in, where we recognize everyone one's inherent humanity and the fact that we all do better when we all do better. Dorian, keep keep pulling on that thread. Where do you want to take that? I mean, my sister Aisha always says all the words. I don't know how to follow up. I'll just let me just let me just um actually add to what she said and really honor her leadership and vision and radical imagination because one of the um as we know, and I know that you've talked about it many times, Rebecca, the welfare queen trope. When I just said those words in everyone's head, popped an image. And the reason why it's probably the same image is because the right has been so good at dominating the narrative and pushing out this racist, sexist narrative around Black women in work and welfare. And what is, and we've had a hard time for 50, 60 years, if not longer, pushing back on that narrative, much less destroying it. And what I love about the Magnolia Mothers Trust is that Dr. Yanduro with her team and her mothers actually, not through just words, but through actions, are going head at that narrative and saying, basically, F you. (laughs) We're going to show you something radically different. 
And so I just want to appreciate her in public here on your podcast, Rebecca, for having that radical imagination and really saying, no, we're not, no, our mothers here in Jackson are deserving just by virtue of who they are. Um, and so, so the second thing I want to say is on, on this, this continued dominant narrative around work and worthiness. I mean, we've seen this play out in the fight around the child tax credit, for instance, the last year and a half of certain senators, um, particularly Democratic ones, basically saying there has to be a work requirement, it has to be a work requirement. You know, otherwise people won't work. It'll be a disincentive to work. And the beauty of Aisha being the pioneer around guaranteed income pilots in this country, I would say in the modern age of this country, and now we're at about a hundred pilots around the country. The beauty of this pretty radical imagination and experimentation is that we have a whole bunch of facts about what happens when you give people money, when you give people cash. What do they do with it? Because we know the dominant narratives will say, oh, you just give people cash. They won't want to work. They're going to go buy cigarettes and alcohol. And here's the thing. it's First of all, if that's what people want to do, then let them do it because that's called freedom and choice. So you, either you believe in freedom and choice or you don't, or you're punitive and paternalistic. Number two, we also know empirically, we have so many studies now that what people do with the money is provide for their families, keep a roof over their heads, buy food for their kids, school supplies, clothes, like the basic necessities that everybody should have. So we know that we're getting this rich amount of data about actually what happens when we can actually make the policy choice to provide everyone with a guaranteed income so they can meet their basic needs. And and it's not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient to have the data because we have to do the deeper storytelling. But I, it does remind me, this is the last point, because um, you both have been involved in these fights too. It reminds me of the distance we've traveled around fights around the minimum wage in the last decade, because there was this theoretical debate about, oh, no, you can't raise wages because, you know, you're going to hurt the very people you want to help. And what will people do with the extra money, blah, blah, blah. And now we just have so much more empirical data and deep storytelling of people directly affected. What happens? And frankly, organizing, a lot of organizing, a lot of worker organizing right now. Of what happens when you raise wages, guess what? The sky doesn't fall. And we're learning that around guaranteed income as well. And, and Dorian, I, I so appreciate you bringing also the, the child tax credit into this because it, 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 it doesn't go without saying it probably just needs to be said as many times as we can, um, given the, the, the moment in policy development that, um, and, and policy realization that we're at in that space that the, the United States doesn't have a guaranteed minimum income. We don't have a guaranteed minimum income even for families with children at a national totally scaled up place. But we do have this thing called the child tax credit, which briefly started to head in that direction as, as part of uh, some of the legislating we saw in the wake of the pandemic when the child tax credit got expanded in a pr- particularly historic way. And now here you are bringing us back to present day and back sort of deflating the balloons and reminding us of the, the political place that we're, we're at today, which is not just Republicans, but also Democrats saying, wait a second, don't we need a work requirement for cash? And it, it's hard to, to um, hear that and engage with that without also then bringing in the uh, present day reality uh, of where our politics and our, our policy making sector is um, because of these limiting beliefs that we're talking about um, uh, around public assistance more broadly, right? The, to, to say that 
to say that we should have public assistance without work reporting requirements, whether that be supplemental nutrition assistance, the, the SNAP program, formerly called food stamps, whether that be uh, Medicaid, which briefly in the Trump era even started to, to have work requirements in some states. I mean, this is a very live conversation that uh, takes us right back to the myth of the welfare queen where you brought us before, Dorian, because of the uh, Reagan era uh, that uh, um, sort of narrative around uh, where poverty comes from that was incredibly racialized um, and which frankly is still with us, even if it's been pushed somewhat underground. And that's really what I think your comments remind me of and remind me it's worth saying out loud while also just saying as a a person, not with my podcast hat on, but with my policy hat on, I've, I've been in rooms for a number of years where I've been the person unpopularly saying, hey, shouldn't we be talking not just about reforming work reporting requirements, but actually getting rid of them in these programs. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of folks who would say, oh, no, 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 we can't go there. We can't go there. That's too, that's too radical. We'll, we'll be laughed out of the room. Like we can't even have that conversation. We just need to talk about reform. And, and yet it is so hard to be in this moment uh, where we're still, it should be said, in a pandemic, but still reckoning with some of the lessons, especially from earlier in the pandemic when we saw just such dramatic and sudden and in some cases almost overnight disruptions within the labor market. It's so hard for me as a human who cares about common humanity to 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 sit here and, and not want to scream from the rooftops. Didn't we learn what a disaster it is to tie basic needs to work? I'll dismount from my soapbox, but I, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I love I love a good soapbox moment. Um, thank you, <laughs> Joy. I usually am the one on the soap um, soapbox rant, so thank you for that. And I will say, you didn't ask the question, but I'm gonna say this because it's been something I've been grappling with that we all have got to give ourselves grace in understanding Mm -hmm. that the work that we are doing is not instantaneous. We want these pieces to move instantaneously because we know that lives are being run and that lives will be changed and that families are suffering and then the suffering doesn't have to exist. It's a choice that we are making. But so much of what it is that we are talking about is values and Values are deeply entrenched in your upbringing, in your narrative, and narrative is important, but we also have to understand that narrative depends on who is telling the story. And so we are asking people in a lot of instances, as we are saying, let's create a more just economy where we all can operate in abundance. We're asking people to discouple ideas that they have been normalized to believe for decades, if not generations. And so for those of us who are freedom fighters, we got to say, shit. oh, I'm so sorry, Troy. We got to say, dang, I got to give myself grace in this moment and recognize that my peace in this change is even introducing a new narrative. It may not be pushing it to the goalpost or to the finish line, but it's to see the idea. And that's okay. And that this really is the long arc of the work. And how do we hold that long arc of the work in one hand while we simultaneously are holding in the other hand the need to immediately support families? And so that's why for me, guaranteed income, the child tax credit, all of our cash-based policies that need to be reformed, why they go hand in hand and saying, okay, we can address the immediate needs that families have, but we also can hold the long vision of what is necessary to get to a society where we have the policies and systems in place 
place that actually do honor our families' humanity and dignity and provide them the support that they need. And it's policy change. And it's the long arc. So we just have to be patient with ourselves and get on our soapboxes whenever we need to um, feel good about ourselves and drop inappropriate curse words whenever we need to feel okay with ourselves and just keep doing the work. I love that. I love that everybody who's been on the show now, like they get to leave and, 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 and curse in their own personal time and then catch themselves saying, sorry, Troy, <laughs> Troy, you, you, uh, you're educating us all. Um, our, our brilliant and fearless producer, Troy, who always bleeps out the, uh, the curse words. Dorian, I, I want to take us into a few additional uh, places before I run out of time with you both. And so I'm going to, I'm going to jump on this chance to, to take you into a slightly different place while also saying, Aisha, you have a permanent invitation to come and hang out on my soapbox <laughs> with me. Um, uh, Dorian, I, you, you mentioned before one of the hats that you wear, that you are um, uh, president of community change and uh, used to be called the Center for Community Change for old school folks who still accidentally call it CCC. <laughs> um, and it's, it, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of things. And it's sort of hard to even put in just a couple of words what, how much it does because there, there are so many different ways that it relates to movement work. But I want to throw this next question to you because organizing and supporting mm. organizers on on the ground and connecting the organizing to the policy making that disproportionately happens in Washington DC is a, is a big part of what you all do it's also a, a part of what you all do very differently and i say that as a compliment than um, a lot of other folks yeah who are who are dc based and so as i ask this next question i want to bring in um, the the spirit of adrian marie brown mm-hmm. who uh, i am a huge fan of and who um, she, uh, i one of my favorite things about her is that she describes herself as a scholar of magic, which I, I am as well and feel very seen in, in, in her being very out about that. She describes herself as an emergent strategist. Mm-hmm. And she has likened organizing to time travel, which is a comparison that I love as also a, a sci-fi nerd. Um, so I want to ask you, how does organizing show up in your work and in movement work and, and in your theory of change um, uh, around the work? And as I ask that question, talk a little bit about how organizing is a tool, not just for shifting collective consciousness or getting public policies to become realities, but but frankly, time travel, as she describes, mm. by shaping our collective future. Ooh, that's quite the question. And I love it. So, I, you know, organizing really is about um, one and first and foremost, the belief that when ordinary people come together, um, when the Davids and the Davidas come together, they can be Goliath. And that ordinary people and those closest to the injustices in our society are also the experts around the solutions and solving those problems. And so um, it's about, you know, our tagline at Community Change is power from the ground up, as opposed to what we might say are some top-down strategies. And at its root, organizing, you know, if you go to any organizing training, the first thing you're going to learn is like to listen, active listening starting where people are, hearing their stories, understanding their values and what they care about. And once you do that listening, good organizers listen much more than they talk. They lead from behind. They empower others to speak for themselves and to take action for themselves. And so, step one is active listening. And then there is an organizing process, Rebecca, of inviting people, of invitations, to an on-ramp, let's say, 
to imagine the future. What Aisha said earlier was radical imagination, and that is time travel. Because if you are, say, an enslaved Black person in 1851, you have no choice but to travel to the future to imagine liberation and freedom. If you're a working class Black woman in Mississippi in 1960, you have no choice but to time travel to the future and imagine a different world for yourself and your children and family. It is sort of the, the core of organizing is about the belief that a different future is possible. And to enact that belief, you have to time travel and you have to have that radical imagination, but you can't stop there. You then need some strategy where you have to, that's what in organizing, what we say are campaigns, they are the process. They are the vehicle to get from here to that future world that we want. They are the vehicle to do, um, to make real the time travel that we might do in our radical imagination and how to make it real. So, um, Organizing can be joyful. It is thankless, tireless work. It is daily work, but it's also transformative in the sense, um, and I'll stop here, when I, I used to be a union organizer, and I, one of the first um, aha moments I had was organizing um, mostly Black and immigrant uh, female housekeepers in hotels in Chicago and seeing them turn up to their first sort of collective action, kind of a rally. Um, after basically saying to their bosses, we need a raise and we want rights on the job. And to see the transformation in their eyes when they looked at each other and saw the collective power they had mm -hmm. versus assuming their problems were just as individuals. That is what organizing is about. It's about that collective and individual transformation um, of consciousness, of imagination, frankly, of saying I and we deserve better, but it's also paired with the strategy of really building power and taking power away from those that dominate our lives and changing the conditions that affect our daily lives. So that's, I know I've just said a lot there about what organizing is, um, but it is one of the only longstanding tools that we have throughout human history that requires all of us to come together who have less power than those who rule to challenge those systems of domination that affect our lives and to transform those systems into places of liberation. Aisha, what do you want to add to that? Nothing. He dropped the mic. Let's move on. <laughs> End of episode. Just kidding. Just kidding. The next question, but I'm like, you know, the king of organizing just told us how to organize. So it was a master class. Let's package that up into a TED talk. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, but and and right. I I I want to sort of tie everything that you just offered, Dorian, to um, an, another science fiction reference, right? Which is that, and and actually, Solana uh, said said something very similar in our first episode. I love. I loved. Um, that she she went there. Um, uh, that that doing this work means that we're all believers in science fiction, right? Because we're we're trying to build an economy and a society that have never existed before, mm -hmm. and so by definition, we're 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 trying to create the future, right? Uh, but but from a place that is not about replicating some past moment. Um, Aisha, I want to I want to take you to a, a question next that is one I've been I've been bringing up with our our guests 
um, in every episode this season. And it's because a, a mentor of mine said something to me recently that um, his words have been continuing to ring, not just in my ears, but really throughout my whole my whole soul since he said these words. And, and that's that living in this time in human history is either an affliction or an assignment. Um, and we, with the implication being, we have we have, we have a choice about uh, which which camp we're going to um, affiliate with, and and then therefore how we respond uh, to this moment and and how we show up in this moment. What advice do you have for advocates or or frankly anyone? Because um, we can all be advocates, even if we're not pro- quote unquote professionally doing this work. Um, wh- what advice do you have for folks who are in the movement in this moment who are looking to accept the assignment? And, and in particular, I, I asked that question with real recognition because of the informational interviews that I uh, love to do whenever anyone sends me an email. It's one of the great honors uh, to get to sit down with folks who are, are trying to figure out where to take their careers. There are so many folks out there right now who are frankly trying to find their place in the work. What, what advice do you have? Oh, yeah. Um, that's such a beautiful question. And I think you caught me on a good day as it relates to advice. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be cynical. <laughs> um, I think the advice that I have for anyone who is looking into this assignment, and I really do consider it one of my greatest privileges in life, that this is really my assignment that I had an opportunity to say yes to and to see how it has tremendously blossomed. Um is just one of the pieces that gives me so much joy. And as I think about advice, I will offer up that they learn pacing. I constantly think about, and I'm often, you know, when I do interviews, sometimes long form interviews, individuals ask me about my maternal grandmother, Dr. Elsie Dorsey, who I've mentioned before, who I learned so many lessons from that I am so grateful for as it relates to my work. But I am often here lately reflective of what I did not learn from her and her contemporaries. And that was how to rest. And that was the pacing that's necessary so that we are sustained to continue to fight. And unfortunately, since I did not learn that lesson from her and her contemporaries, they're not here. Um, They all expired prematurely because of the fact that the work is hard. And if we are not understanding that you have to pace yourself and you have to rest and you have to listen to your body and you have to say joyous no's as much as you are saying joyous yeses, um, the work won't move and the work won't continue. And so I really want people to divorce themselves from the idea that, oh, my God, work is so hard. And if I am not here, it won't get done. And I have to be working 24-7. If you're working 24-7, the work won't get done because you won't be here. You'll be dead. And that doesn't serve any of us well. I love you so much for that being your answer. I'm not trying to interrupt you if you've got more of that medicine to share, but boy, is that the right thing to, one of the right things to, to be saying to so many people right now. Yeah, you know, and, I, and it's a reframing and it's, you know, and I think for my grandmother, my granny and her contemporaries, that idea that an idol mine is the devil's workshop, that was probably true and it did serve them well. And for, you know, my great grandmother and those who came before her, the idea that they did have to constantly be working because they were in the fields of Mississippi and they could not stop because there were consequences. But for so many of us right now, that's not our reality. That is a narrative that we are choosing to cloak ourselves with as if it's a 
banner and we need to stop. And so we need to learn to rest. We need to take a nap. We need to be restored. We need to have random conversations with our friends and our text uh, message groups. So that's the advice I would offer up. Not sure if it's what you expected, but that's all I got. Yeah, I, 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 tr- I try not to expect an answer from you because I always know that what I'm going to get is better than anything I've, I've been expecting um, just to join the Aisha fan club that Dorian founded earlier in this episode. Um, but uh, although I think actually we founded an Aisha fan club on a prior episode you guys did mm-hmm, together. So maybe, maybe mm-hmm. we're just, maybe we're just reinstating it. I <laughs> know. Um, I, I love, I love that answer. I will also just say on a personal note uh, that how much that resonates with me as someone who is now, endeavoring to be a lot more public uh, about my own experience with working myself into the ground and uh, living with functional burnout for years that I didn't realize was functional burnout and the, the physical and the mental and the emotional and the spiritual levels that this all then plays out on. It's hard to hear you say that and not actually feel that it takes us back full circle to where we started with the conversation around collective limiting beliefs, given that the notion that your work is your worth, can it, it plays out at every level of the socioeconomic uh, hierarchy that our society is still wedded to. And it, it is not just true of people who are uh, perhaps underpaid or undervalued in their jobs. It, it follows through to the folks doing the work to try to do the social change, right? And can show up in, um, in, in, in work addiction and, and, and other um, uh, work codependency and, and all of that can become work sickness for-, for It's for, for, so for, amazing how strong yeah. white supremacy is, I tell you. <laughs> and, the, and the effect on all of us, right? All of us just for, for being, uh, being here and, and, and in the water that we're all swimming in together. Dorian, what thoughts do you have on that same question, if any? Uh, I used to drop the mic on that. I don't have anything to add. It returns. So yes. And I was listening intently. Yeah. Rest. Well, Thank you. Thank you. Then I'm going to, then I'm going to take, I'm going to take you to one last place. And this is where we're going to close out. And that is, it, it harks back to a point that both of you have made. And Aisha, you, you were speaking brilliantly and beautifully about this before around keeping the North Star while also celebrating the wins and the incremental progress that's in keeping with the arc that that North Star is taking us to. Um, you can, it's been said a lot of times um, uh, through, throughout, uh, throughout the history of, of movement work, including around the, uh, the arc of the, the um, moral universe, right? Which is perhaps the, the best known version of that, that, um, that quote. Uh, I want to ask as our last question, how do we keep visioning forward while we also do the work of protecting the gains that we've made, which can often require engaging not just in incremental offense, but day-to-day battles just to protect our our communities? I, I ask that question as we're obviously hurtling towards some pretty critical midterms and we're choosing not to make this show a news cycle based show in this moment. So we haven't been doing lots of, oh my God, what what are we what are we expecting for Democrats or Republicans in the in the House or in the Senate? But I, I want to close by asking both of you how you're threading the needle right now and what advice you have for for others um, as we we move towards those midterms, which are incredibly important because of how much is at stake. Everyone get educated and go vote. But without losing that larger perspective around the radical visioning and radical imagination we need to be doing. Um, and I don't know who wants to take that first and the other will get the last word. I can take it first. Uh, oh, I was going to take that first and you can have the last, the last okay. word, Doc. Thank you, you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'll be quick. <laughs> I think 
To answer that question, Rebecca, two things come to mind. One is um, some improv principles. Um, I'm a big fan of Second City in my hometown of Chicago. I've taken some improvisation classes. And there's always a principle of, of yes and, um, which I interpret to mean, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. There's a little bit of both and. So how do we keep our sights on what's ahead of us in this next week or month or year and the North Star that might be 5, 10, 50 years away? We have to be able to do both at the same time because um, surely our ancestors did. So we have no excuse not to. Um, there's another improv principle that's about um, playing the scene you were you are in, not the scene you wish you were in. And I think that's an important insight to say, to have the sober assessment of like, what is what are the current conditions we're facing right now? Not the ones we're imagining. But I would add to that, like, play the scene you're in, not the one you wish you were in. How do we collectively write entirely new scenes all together, right? And again, that requires doing both at the same time. And then last, I would say is um, maybe this is how I think about the world, continuing to find the sacred and the mundane. And what I mean by that is whether it's really looking at a grain of sand or a leaf falling off a tree during fall, or frankly, you know, not taking for granted the feel of my two-year-old's hand in my hand. Those kind of things are the things we can often be distracted from in our daily work lives. And I just think it's so important to stay connected to family, to loved ones, to the earth, to our moral purpose. And often you find that connectedness in what may seem to be mundane. That's absolutely beautiful, and uh, it's it's medicine on on every level. Aisha, you are going to get the last word. That was so beautiful. Um, and this last question is: since we talking about, since we were talking earlier a little bit about science fiction, it brings me to one of my favorite quotes from Octavia Butler: "All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you." And I think about that every day, and I have a daily practice where I actually write out what did I change today and what changed me. And it helps me stay grounded in the here and now, and then also thinking about the thinking about the future and that future casting that's necessary. And I really thread the needle by realizing that none of us got here or got into this work because it was easy. Um, we know dismantling the systems of oppression is no simple feat but that also none of us are here by accident. And it's even more necessary that if we said yes to this assignment, we're here to keep fighting in the hard times. So, so yeah. Aisha, there, there are messages going on in the chat right now that uh, Dorian, and I'm going to add myself to this, we're adopting that practice immediately. <laughs> that is brilliant and beautiful. And I love that that's where we're ending this conversation. Aisha, I have to say your comments about rest and pacing have also inspired me that maybe it's time for us to do a, a, a podcast episode uh, for Off Kilter around how to live by the, the cycles of the moon. There's a, a lot of my witchy side that I don't bring into these conversations that now you're inspiring me to bring in in the spirit of radical self-care. Um, but that's a beautiful practice. What did you change? change today and what did you change um, or and what changed you? I, I love that so much. Um, we're going to run out of time and I wish we had multiple more hours because there's so much that we could speak to here and I'd love to spend more time with you, but I, I'm going to need to let you both go to other very important commitments. Aisha Yandoro is CEO of the Springboard to Opportunities Adventure and Enterprise that anyone who's not familiar with should go and check out. Also the architect of the Magnolia Mothers Trust, which we've had 
whole episodes diving into uh, deeply. So for folks looking to learn more, go check out past conversations with Aisha. Um, and Dorian Warren is co-president of Community Change, co-chair of the Economic Security Project. He wears lots of other hats too. Dorian, Aisha, thank you both for taking the time. And I just so enjoyed this conversation. I always do, but um, you, you two are, uh, I think, especially in a, 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 a strong soul-based place today. Well, thank you for having us together again. I don't want to come yeah. back on the show without my sister, Aisha. I'm just saying. We've Rebecca, got to figure so. out how to do it in person. Get you out of your closet. Oh, <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Or we'll go meet in Dorian's closet. I don't know. I'm, I'm flexible as long as it means sharing oh, yes, space with y'all. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Best wishes to you both. We'll, we'll make it happen soon. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Talk soon. Bye, everybody. And that does it for this week's show. Off Kilter is powered by the Century Foundation and produced by We Act Radio, with a special shout out to executive producer Troy Miller and his merry band of farm animals, and the indefatigable Abby Grimshaw. Transcripts, which help us make the show accessible, are courtesy of Cheryl Green and her fabulous feline co-worker. Find us every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And if you like what we do here at Off Kilter Enterprises, send us some love by hitting that subscribe button and rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts to help other folks find the pod. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.